You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Somebody had asked me, how did Paul's letters become accepted as scripture? And it starts with Peter. We read Paul's epistles as if they are the word of God, as if they are as valuable to us as, say, Isaiah or Exodus or, or Psalms. And I'm, I trust that as you read those books, you actually view them as God's word to us that tell the story that he wants us to know about redemption and that they transform us. They're not just interesting thoughts, but they have the power to change our lives, to change our spirit. And so each book in the Bible has its own story as to how it became accepted as a reliable word from God. Peter, in his second epistle, is making a thought about um, our salvation in God's patience. In 2 Peter 3.14, he wrote, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for all of these things to happen, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So this is Peter. This is Peter who ran around with Jesus. This is Peter the fisherman. This is the Peter who witnessed miracles that Jesus did. This is Peter who was with James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was radiant and Moses shows up and have a, has a conversation with Jesus. This is Peter. Okay, so this is not just some, some schmo walking down the road. I mean, we're talking about Peter here, who was with Jesus for three years. Peter, who saw the resurrected Jesus. Peter, who sat on the seashore and had breakfast with the resurrected Jesus. Peter, who saw Jesus rise up from the mountaintop. So this is Peter, okay? So we can trust something that Peter says. And Peter's talking about, Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And Peter has just mentioned the patience of the Lord, and it's safe to assume he means Paul gets his wisdom from the Lord. And he goes on in verse 16 talking about Paul, as he does in all his letters. And he does use the Greek word epistolize, 
recognizing these really are epistles that bring persuasion and truth, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, in Paul's epistles, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And he uses the word graphe. And graphe is the classic New Testament word to talk about the Old Testament scripture. Graphe was the word they used. When we talk about Holy Bible, their term was graphe, the writings. Not just any writings, but the writings. The writings. And, and very often they'll say, you know, the writings of the law, the writings of Moses, the writings of Isaiah. So Peter is putting Paul's epistles in the same camp as the writings, the graphe, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Chronicles, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Micah, Amos, those guys. And so it is Peter in his letter who is saying that Paul in his epistles are in the same camp. Paul's epistles are to be considered at the same level as the other graphe, as the modern term we use is scripture, as sacred truth from God, inspired from God. And Paul uses the term theopneustos, God breathed. So that is why the early church began to view Paul's epistles as something worthy of being read together and studied together and see as uh, a way to help understand the gospel message through the epistles. In his later years, John, the apostle who outlived everybody else, was teaching his students that the writings of Paul and Peter are graphe. And so John, after Peter died, after Paul died, John, who's still alive, was the one who said what Peter wrote, those, those two epistles, and, and, and those 11 epistles from Paul, they're from God for us on the same level as graphe. And so we're, we're in good company by trusting the testimony of Peter, the apostle, and John, the apostle, that Paul in his writings are worth reading and trustworthy. And Peter is putting them in the same camp as what we call the rest of the Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament. So this is where it starts. Now, in the first few centuries of the church, not everybody was persuaded of that. So there was debate and, and um, consideration and prayer. But the letters that we're looking at this week fall into that group that Peter recognized as graphe. Um, historically, Timothy is the one who collected Paul's letters together and kept a, a, a compilation of these epistles. Um, and perfect choice because he was the companion with Paul through most of his ministry. He wasn't there through, through everything because very often Paul would send Timothy to go visit one of the outlying churches and so Timothy and Paul would be separate. But typically it's because he was sent on outreach <laughs> and he's gone and then he comes back. Uh, but Timothy was the most consistent companion and therefore was aware of the letters and documents and epistles that Paul wrote. So I commend to you, Paul, from the words of Peter, and John, that, uh, that what Paul wrote was graphe, was scripture, at least these epistles that we have together. Okay. Any question on that? Yes. So, so what is your opinion about like Paul's lost letters? Like, if they were ever found, would they be in the same group? Or were they like not lost during the early church? And so, you know, 
it's an excellent question. Okay. Right. Uh, Paul implies that he wrote another letter. It's likely that he wrote three, possibly four letters to the church in Corinth. We only have two. Okay. Here, here's, here's what the early church around the Council of Nicaea discussed. Okay. So, uh, in, in the late 300s, so 300, not quite 400 years after the resurrection, uh, there had been multiple church councils, and in the church councils, it's not that they argued or debated about which books were graphe. They were asking a set of questions, and the questions were this. These new things that we're reading, are they written by an apostle, or are they written by a student of an apostle? And... Have these documents, as they're being read, impacted the people in your congregation so it makes them more in the image of Christ? Are these documents consistent with everything that has come before? Everything from Genesis on. Is it in internally consistent in its content and substance and teaching? Or does it contradict? So the, so the Gospel of Thomas wasn't written by Thomas. It was written... 230 years after the resurrection, it is inconsistent. It was not written by an apostle. It was not written by a student of apostle. It is not internally consistent. And it was not read by people that changed their lives more into the image of Christ. So the Gospel of Thomas falls on every point. So what if we find a letter and can verify that it was written by Paul or John or Peter? What if the vocabulary is so similar and 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 it's found in a place that would be verifiable. What if in um, Capernaum, under Peter's house, in a clay jar, we know where Peter lived. That We know the house where Peter lived in Capernaum. What if the archaeologists found a clay jar and they found First Peter in Fourth Peter? <laughs> and they read First Peter and said, oh yeah, we already have this one. Fourth Peter, oh, we don't have this one. The questions still remain. Is it written by an apostle? Yeah by a student of Apostle. Well, he's good on the first point, so he's okay. Thank you. And it might be consistent with everything else we know of Scripture, but was it read by the people of the early church and changed their life more into the image of Christ? Because at the Council of Nicaea, which was four centuries later, their conclusion was, this is what God has spoken to the church. And... These are the books that the people of the early church have been reading. So if a document gets found now and it's never been read for the past 2,000 years, but it could be verified as from the hand of an apostle, I would say, let's read it and let's study it. The way we, the way we study, study Athanasius. Athanasius was a North African pastor on the North Coast, uh, late 3rd century, early 4th century. Awesome preacher. He became a bishop the leading bishop of Alexandria, of all of North Africa, a leading theologian. I mean, he wrote incredible stuff. I've read the writings of Athanasius. And he comments on Scripture. He interprets Scripture. He, he preached Scripture. So we, we have sermons from his. Uh, we have his theology of Trinity that he wrote about. Good stuff. Not Scripture. But he's writing about Scripture. And I look at it like anybody I'm reading today, uh, Bible scholars, ministers, missionaries. Uh, Don Richardson. If, you've, if you haven't read Don Richardson, read Don Richardson. Uh, Eternity in the Hearts of Men. Peace Child. 
uh, incredible missionary anthropologist. He passed away a few years ago. What a brilliant mind and what a passionate missionary and, and what, a, what a intellectual anthropologist. He studied ancient cultures, uh, primitive cultures, to understand how best to give the gospel to them. And he did interpretation of the book of Acts from an anthropological missions perspective. Oh, incredible stuff. So I've read Don Richardson. Uh, we had him come and speak at our church when, when I was at Mechanicsville Christian Center. We had him come and speak for our missions convention. Wow. So honor the man. Everything he wrote, it's worth reading. It is not graphe, but he writes about graphe. And so if we find a document that can be verified or the best conclusion is it was from the hand of Paul or John or Peter or Luke, I would say, yes, let's study it, but let's not add it to the scripture. Because the Council of Nicaea were convinced that we had a closed canon. We had a canon, but it was closed. And so I belong to that part of the church that trusts that the canon is closed. So if we find documents that enrich us, let them enrich us. But I don't think we'll find documents that are Word of God that have never been found before. Okay? So I, I would hope that we do, in fact, find ancient documents from uh, our, our trusted writers. That would be sweet. <laughs> um, and in some of the writings of Papias, Papias was a student of John uh, in Ephesus. Uh, Papias, in his later years, in his writings, quotes John with John quoting Jesus of sentences that aren't found in the gospel. <laughs> so he's like, whoa, uh, that is remarkable. Um, but the early church recognized, okay, th th this, is, this is oral tradition handed down. Let us not take those written statements from Papias, secondhand from John, about what he heard Jesus say. But let's study them and, and have insight from them, but let's not elevate them to the level of graphe. Theopneustos, God-breathed writings. Um, so I, I'm, I'm of that mind. When I was, um, I spent one year at Union Seminary here in Richmond back in 1982 working on my master's degree. And there was a petition going around to have the next Bible, the next uh, Revised Standard Version, include several letters from Martin Luther King Jr., the letter that he wrote from the Birmingham prison, which if you have never read that letter, read it. It is powerful. Um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Bir Birmingham prison. Incredible statement to the church in America, enduring word. I, I, I couldn't bring myself to sign the petition. The petition was to have that letter and several other letters included at the end of the book of Revelation as if it was scripture, as if it was worthy of, of being among the epistles with Paul and Peter. And I believe in a closed canon. I, I trust that what we have is what God wanted us to have. But if you've never read his letter from the Birmingham prison, read it. Um, it, it, was, it was truly an indictment of the white church in the South not speaking out clearly when it came to civil rights in the 1960s. And 
what he said was as true today. In fact, it speaks with greater clarity today than I think it ever has. So if you've never read it, read it. I mean, you can pull it up on the internet. It's you know just Martin Luther King Jr. Birmingham letter. But does it belong with First Corinthians? No. It's not God breathed graphe. Okay. Now that was more than you wanted to know, but it's, it's it helps us to know why we have the the documents we have and why we can trust them and why we don't open up to others. If you've never read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, read it someday. It, it is great. It's hard to read. It, it's a tough read because it's very intellectual British perspective. Which book is that by hmm? Which book is that by uh, Mere Christianity. Uh, oh, well, well he... he now, I've read it a dozen times. So I can read it now, and I and I go, oh yeah, this is great. But the first few times I read it, it's complicated in that he is using um, highly educated vocabulary and concepts that are well. He was teaching at Cambridge University at the time in, in the doctoral program, so it sounds like a, a PhD teaching PhD students. Um, but I would still challenge you to read it. It, it will it will enrich it will enrich your vocabulary and also expose you to an attitude of the unity in the body of Christ when we identify those things that make us merely Christian first and recognize those things that are secondary, the primary things of faith. And, and, and he identifies um, five or six essentials that God is, and God has given us his word, the scripture. We have a problem with sin, and God has sent the, the solution to the problem through Jesus on the cross with the substitute atonement and that Jesus is coming back. So those, when we affirm those, it makes us merely Christian. But then we have to make decisions about uh, church government. How do we do mission? How do we do church suppers? How, how do we organize our, our churches? How do we do baptism? How do we do communion? And C.S. Lewis says those are secondary. <laughs> it's the essentials that make us merely Christian and then we have we do have to go worship with other people. We do have to have communion and baptism with other people. And that's when we are Methodist and Episcopal and Baptist and Charismatic and Presbyterian. And so he said we should be those things, but we should be first merely Christian. So I like that. And, and he borrows some of the themes from Ephesians. But that's not part of what Corinthians is. Let's look at Corinthians, okay? Now... Yesterday, I proposed to you that in his letter, Paul probably includes slogans that the Corinthian agitators were proposing, and he just copies them in his letter, and then we're left trying to guess, does this require punctuation mark um, to, to indicate that this is not his statement, but he's copying their statement. He's copy-pasted their statement, their slogan. Like uh, chapter 6, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And in, in reading it, it seems to me that it could be that they were writing, all things are lawful for me. And then Paul responds, ah, but not all things are helpful. And then they probably wrote, all things are lawful for me. 
And he responds, but I will not be dominated by anything. And so sometimes when there's the but, uh, and, and the Greek includes a very clear uh, responsive word that contrasts the previous statement, and that may have been Paul's grammatical instrument instead of using quotation marks, because they didn't, they didn't use quotation marks, but they could use a contrasting grammatical clue. And he does that in chapter 7, which, which really makes sense to me. Uh, chapter 7, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, or it's good for a man not to marry, or it's good for a man to not come on to a virgin. And it, it, the terms could be translated in different ways. But it's followed by the word but. <laughs> but, since there's so much immorality. And it's the same term that he uses in chapter 6. And so I think the opening statement in chapter 7 is not Paul. It's not a Pauline thought. I think he's quoting them. And so the publishers of Bibles struggle with, do we put this in quotation marks or not? And some of them do, some of them don't. And um, the, the, the Bible translations that are done by committees, like the ESV was a committee translation, uh, NIV was a committee, CSB was a committee, um, and in committee, they argued and debated, not, maybe, maybe not so much argued, but they debated among themselves as, as Bible scholar translators whether to put quotation marks or not. And um, so, which hopefully that knowledge will temper your attitude about Paul. Because sometimes people, as they teach from Paul, give the impression that he was inconsistent, he was belligerent, he was anti-woman, and I don't think so. I, 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 I think a careful reading shows um, sometimes he's just quoting them and responding, which is, which is a classic first century rabbinic technique of explaining matters by actually quoting the person that you're dealing with and not misquoting. In modern times, it's more common to misquote somebody and make your enemies sound worse than they actually are in order to shame them in, in, in the process. I don't like that, but I recognize that happens a lot, especially in politics, uh, but also in the church. Okay, so slogans, very, li very likely. And Paul was also aware of Jewish folklore, and we're not always aware of Jewish folklore. For example, in 1 in Corinthians 10, Paul said, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And so he brings up the story of Moses in the wilderness. And all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, in Jewish folklore, in, 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 in the writings of the Pentateuch, there is the record that Moses got water from the rock. Okay, that, that's, Moses wrote about that, right? On one occasion, he speaks to the rock and it comes out. Another time, he hits the rock and the water comes out. So he, there's a couple of examples where they're in the wilderness. There is no oasis. There's no spring. There's no well. There's no river. There's no source of water. And God miraculously causes water to come out of the rock. Okay, that's in the Bible. In Jewish folklore... The, the folk tale began that the rock would follow them. They would get up the next morning and there's the same boulder that was 20 miles away yesterday. 
and they pack up everything and they walk another 20 miles and they go to bed and they get up in the morning and there's the rock. And so there's a folk, a folk tale, there's a series of folk tales about the following rock. Now, Moses didn't say that in the Pentateuch, but that's part of folklore. And so th that, that's a story that was repeated. And Paul had heard that story probably as a kid, other kids telling it or his grandma told it or whatever, you know. And Jew Jewish people were, were comfortable telling folk tales. Uh, there's this folk tale about the bosom of Abraham not based on any biblical truth, but, but Jesus refers to it in the gospel to make a parabolic point. Well, it's okay to use folktales without endorsing the factual basis of the folktale. Just to use the folktale doesn't mean he's saying, I believe this. He did it to make a point that if you're going to conclude that there was a spiritual rock following them, guess what? That rock was Christ. That rock was Jesus. Now, Having said that, some Christians have done their research and they found the folktale and then they took it literally that Jesus became a rock. Jesus disguised himself as a stone, as a boulder, and that at night he would grow legs and walk along in the desert. And the rock was Jesus in a pre-incarnation appearance. Okay, It was a Christophany. And I would, I would wish that people wouldn't do that. It's, it's a, it's a folktale, and Jesus was comfortable referring to a folktale without endorsing the factual issue. And Paul's okay using a folktale without endorsing it as a fact. So um, I, I'm okay with that. I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable using imagery from movies without endorsing the movie. Okay, it's just so. So Paul was aware of folklore. He's making the point that we have been initiated into an experience with God. The people in the Old Testament, they were, they were initiated into their experience in the wilderness along with Moses. And there was cloud and there was sea, but God fed them. It was God feeding them. God giving them manna and God feeding their spirit, if they would let God. Okay? And that's the point. He's, Paul's just trying to make the point that it's God who brings spiritual food. It's not the rock. It's just God using the rock. Okay, And it's not that the rock literally was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. That's pushing it too far. Okay. Now, um, baptized. Baptized into one body. Uh, Paul brings up Baptism a lot, First Corinthians twelve twelve. Just as just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So we've got the body is one, but many parts, many different members. And 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 as Paul would write it, people could obviously look at their hands and their legs and their feet, and look at the people around them and and confirm. Oh, you're right. One body, oh, I, you know, you can look around and see ears and noses and mouths and, you know, that, that's evident. So he's using an easy example of one made up of many. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Baptized into one body. Okay, preposition, into, object to the preposition, body. So the verb is explaining the prepositional phrase. 
baptized into one body. Be sure, if there's a prepositional phrase, to interpret it in relation to the verb. For, by means of one spirit, we were baptized into one body. And, and he clarifies, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, he, he mixes his metaphors because he's allowed to. My, my high school grammar teacher wouldn't allow us. Don't mix your metaphors. Like that was a big sin. I read the Bible, I got mixed metaphors all over the Bible. It's not a sin. It's cool. It's, it's artistic. It's interesting. Okay, so don't be afraid to mix your metaphors, even if your grammar teacher told you not to. Now, initiated by means of one spirit into one body spiritually changed, regenerated by the Holy Spirit and united with Christ as part of his body, his church. We are parts, we're body parts of the body, okay? So don't ever get too full of yourself. Don't ever think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Don't think of, don't think of yourself less than you ought to. You are the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus, your Lord. You're also body parts. And you got to stay plugged in, otherwise it's weird. You get this finger crawling across the floor, completely detached, and it's useless, okay? Eventually it will die. So stay plugged in. So a unit with many parts. This example illustrates the unity and diversity at the same time of the different charismata. It's in the context of chapter 11, 12, 13, and it's the charismata that the people are confused about. The Corinthian church is really messing it up when it comes to the spiritual giftings and the manifestations, especially of the verbal, vocal, outward stuff. They're, they've got it all confused. They don't understand the point and the purpose and, and the process. He says, this, this, you know, we're baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks. In Christ, there is no racial distinction. There's no ethnic distinction. There's no cultural distinction of anybody better than anybody else. Slave or free, there's no social distinction. In whatever, whatever condition people found themselves at that time, when it comes to coming into the presence of God and experiencing the Spirit of God, there's no distinction. It is not withheld from anybody. All given the one Spirit to drink, God has given all His people the Holy Spirit to indwell them so that their lives may overflow with the fruit of the Spirit, the Galatians chapter 5 stuff. So, initiated by means, by the power of the Holy Spirit into one body. I point that out because there are denominations in churches, when it comes to baptism, all they can think about is the water and the words they use when the people go into the water. For them, it's the ritual. And th that's, that's common. The very often religious people lock onto the ritual and forget the ritual is our human reaction after the fact to a much deeper work of God in somebody. We're always playing catch up. Okay, Most of our, our, our church rituals are, are after the fact. We're playing catch up to acknowledge what God's already done. Well, that, that's okay as long as we acknowledge this is a ritual that we celebrate the fact that God's already done this wonderful thing for us and it's our opportunity to have an outward act. Every communion is an outward ritual to recognize that 
one sacrifice once for all. Awesome. Well, it, it, and some people, some people get wrapped up in the ritual as if that's the point. And the point is to remember what God has done, to celebrate what God has done, to teach others what God has done. Uh, that's why Jewish people do the Passover Seder, to, to teach their children and grandchildren what God did. The whole exodus and the plagues and Pharaoh and getting the people out and, and the, the unleavened bread. It, it's to tell the story of God bringing death upon the land and life for the people who marked their homes with blood of the Lamb, which becomes a foreshadowing of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who shed His blood for us. So, it is the Holy Spirit that baptizes us, that initiates us, that causes us to be body of Christ, that causes us to be the church. In spite of the fact that some people think water baptism makes you a member of the church. Well, actually, according to Paul, it's the Holy Spirit that initiates us into the body of Christ. The living representation, which we call the church around the world, the church universal, the church made up of human beings breathing and moving about. It's, it's the Holy Spirit that caused me to no longer just be me, but to be a member, a body part of the body of Christ, the church. Okay. So, so whatever rituals and ceremonies we do, cool, as long as we recognize it's our way to celebrate what the Holy Spirit's already done. Okay. And uh, a word about made zone, a word about uh, earnestly desire the greater gifts, earnestly desire the higher charismata. I will show you an even better way. First uh, Corinthians twelve thirty one. Um, I think this is the ESV. Uh, would somebody read twelve thirty one, please? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Yes, yeah. higher gifts. So that's the ESV. Uh, some translations say the better gift or the greater gift. And I've had people ask me, well, which one is the greater gift? Or a lot of people will ask, which, which gift is the greatest gift? And I stare at them. <laughs> and I ask, uh, do you have a set of keys? Does anybody have a set of keys? Awesome. There's a bunch of these keys. That is great. Okay. Now, I promise I will return these. Now, I won't ask you, Dave, uh, which one of these is the greatest key? Which one? Car key. Why would you choose the car key? Because you want the car, right? <laughs> uh, for getting around. Okay. Okay, what if you've already arrived at your destination and you're standing not at a car door, but at a house door? Which one is the greater gift? The house key. Okay. How do you know that's the right, right house key? It looks, it looks like a house key to me. Uh, this one also looks like my parents' house yeah. key. Yeah. Now, in English, okay, I'm, I'm not sure how the Spanish deals with it, but in English, we use the word greater very often to identify quality. 
that that it has it has greater quality or value. It's more valuable or more important, or in some way its its quality is greatest over all the others all the time. As if if you have twenty one items and one of them is the greatest, it's always the greatest, and always will be the greatest. And and the others might come in second or third or twentieth place, but one of them is always the greater. The Greek word is mezona. Mezona is greater as far as having impact, higher as far as ranking by its impact. It has to do with what is the impact. So. I'm moving around base, and, and uh, uh, some of these keys are, are to different buildings around here on the base, right? Okay, which get you into a building or a room. Okay, so you've got a small group meeting, and you're headed over somewhere, and you're the only one with a key, and you get to that door of that building, and you know which key it is. That's that's the made zone key. The one that's going to have the greatest impact in that moment, so that your small group can go in there and have your meeting, okay? Because you're already standing there, you don't need the car key, okay? Because everybody's already arrived. But but if you do need to take some people and go somewhere on the road, guess what? It does become the made zone key, the one with the greatest impact in that moment. That's what Paul says. Now. He, he gives over 20 different charismata in four different lists. He says, earnestly desire the greater gift, the gift that's going to have the greatest impact in the moment. Okay. Therefore, as a question of which charisma will have the most impact in a given circumstance, no one gift continually remains greater or higher than the others. The higher or made zone gift or tool is the one which will have the greatest impact at that time. Earnestly desire which tool that will be most useful, most impacting. It depends on what lock you need opened. And so I would I would recommend that you look at the charismata as a lock that needs a key. And, and God has assigned and determined there are different tools that will open up the situation for His grace to be present. Here's, um, here's my lining up of the four different lists. 1 Corinthians has two different listings of charismata. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, at the, at the beginning of chapter 12. And then he has another list. He repeats, a, he, he repeats a couple of the same ones in verses 28 through 30, and then introduces some, some others. <coughs> so, in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, he lists prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healing or cures, Miracles, discernment of spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Then at the end of chapter 12, he lists prophets, teachers, gifts of cures, powers, apostles, helps, and administrations. In Ephesians, he lists prophecy, teaching, apostle, evangelism, shepherd. In Ephesians 4. 
In Romans 12, he lists prophecy, serving, teaching, encouraging or exhorting, giving, leadership, and mercy. Only one of those occurs in all four lists. That's prophecy. Uh, let's see, teaching occurs in three of them. Uh, healing or cures occurs in two. Uh, miraculous powers occurs in two. An apostle occurs in two. All the rest occur once. Okay. Now, um, I would not say prophecy is more important because it occurs in all four. I would say Paul was, was led to include that. 21 of them. Now, there may be others, and other people have suggested individual um, spiritual gifts mentioned elsewhere, but when it comes to a list in which there's a, at least five or more listed, these are the four gift list or the four charismata. And let me give you the basis of charismata as a word. 1 Corinthians 1.4 says, I always thank God for you because of his charis given you in Christ Jesus. The word charis we translate as grace. So the English word grace, uh, what's the Spanish word for grace? Okay. Gracia. Gracia. Okay. Which actually sounds closer to charis. Um, charity uh, yeah, the word charity comes from this. Okay, uh, as in English. A lot of a lot of um, Latin and English and French and Spanish words have been built upon the original Greek, including this word caris. But caris is the it's the it's the root or stem of many other words. 1 Corinthians 1.7, just three verses later, says, Therefore you do not lack any charismati as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So let me give you what the words mean. Charis means unmerited favor or grace, or at least in English we translate charis as grace, as one word, or unmerited favor or unearned kindness. And so grace is the word that we've used in English and in, in, in Spanish. Charisma is often translated as spiritual gift. I translate it tool of grace. It's built upon the word grace. It is an instrument that brings grace. The plural of that is charismata, tools of grace. In, in our modern vocabulary, a charismatic would be a person who uses a tool of grace. And so the, the, the terminology of charismatics comes from charismata, which is the plural, tools of grace. The singular is charisma. And I, and I know in secular culture, people use the word charisma to identify a person who has a magnetic personality. That's not what the Greek meant. Uh, that, that's, that, that's when it was used in the French, it took on that, that attitude and magnetism, and the English borrowed from the French that nuance of magnetism. And so in modern culture, when people mention, oh, he's a very charismatic fellow. They're, if they're not in the church, but at the office, they're talking about someone who's appealing or winsome or magnetic or, or popular, okay? Uh, that's not what the Greek is. Charismata is a tool of grace. Some people call it a gift of grace or a spiritual gift. I'm not crazy about the terminology spiritual gift, but it's so popular now that I'm not going to change it, okay? That's still what people call it. Um, 
spiritual gift to me sounds like a present <laughs> or, or jewelry. And you have a necklace on. It's a lovely necklace. Um, nice jewelry uh, adorns and complements you know, earrings. Um, uh, or it symbolizes something. Okay, Jewelry symbolizes something. It, it carries with it imagery. And so jewelry is okay. My concern is some people wear their spiritual gift as if it is jewelry <laughs> to adorn themselves, to compliment, uh, to draw attention, or, or to in some way make them look better. <laughs> and that's not what a charismata is. Okay, So I, I, I make the distinction between spiritual gift and an instrument through which God brings grace into someone's life or circumstance. An instrument or tool through which God brings grace into someone's life or circumstance. Now, let's look at that list again. An instrument that brings the grace of God into someone's life or their circumstance. Prophecy. Someone hearing about who God is, what He's like, and what God's going to do. And by learning that, it brings God's grace. Teaching. Just teaching the Bible, teaching about God so that people experience the grace of God because they learn something about God. Serving. One person serves another so that the grace of God is evident to them and comes to the recipient of the service, not the one who was doing the serving. Encouraging. Exhortation. I mean, that's as obvious as it gets. Encouraging somebody so that so that they open up and, and they're, they're encouraged and God's grace comes. Giving. To somebody and they receive the gift that comes to them and they open up to receive that gift and at the same time God's grace comes into their life. Leadership. Someone is led further along in their walk as a disciple and God's grace comes as they're being led. Mercy. Someone receives mercy and bam they get hit by grace at the same time. Okay, Do you follow me? Every one of these when they are properly functioning are an instrument that brings God's grace into somebody's life or into their circumstance. A word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, faith. And it's not about the person exercising the instrument. It's not about the person using the tool. It's not meant to puff up or to increase the celebrity status or the fame of that person. And I'm speaking from experience here. I have, I have been around the block for 45 years of faith and I've seen so many people and they think these gifts are about them instead of tool that they bring to the job site and as soon as they use the tool that God gives grace of God comes into somebody else's somebody else's somebody else's life okay that's the objective that's that that's the point including uh, tongues and the interpretation of tongues. It's not about the person tonguing, <laughs> talking, speaking. It's about what happens in the lives of people who hear it. Like on that day of Pentecost when Peter gets up and speaks and 3,000 people experience God's grace because they got saved. Really? Well, yeah, that's, that's a perfect example of an instrument that brings God's grace into people's lives or their circumstance. Now, 
there are different kinds, in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, there are different kinds of tools of grace, but the same spirit. Okay. And Paul uses the word charismata. Okay. That's the plural tools of grace. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. And for service, he uses the word diakoneon. Okay. You recognize that word? Diakoneon. Our word deacon comes from the word that means serve. Deacon, diakoneon, means a servant, someone who's willing to serve. And lo and behold, when we serve somebody and they receive that, we're serving them on behalf of the Lord in whatever capacity. It creates an environment in which God's grace will be present for them if they will receive it. Not everybody will receive your service, but don't stop trying. <laughs> there are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all people. And, and the word for work occurs two times there. Different kinds of working, energamaton, and you see the word energy right there? Energamaton. And, but the same God works all of them in all people, in ergon, uh, um, energy, uh, ergonomics, uh, th those kind of words come from this. There are different kinds of working, different ways of working, but the same God is working all of them in all the people. He's in charge. He decides which tool you need in a given circumstance. And I know there are some people, they go searching for their gift, their tool. And they think it's all about them discovering what their tool is and then using that tool in every circumstance for every person in every in every place all the time. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Um, I, I worked as a carpenter when I was going through graduate school. I would get a job working, you know, building and siding houses and framing. And, and I learned carpentry. I have a, I have a carpenter's belt. I still have, I wore out one belt and I bought another one, but I still have the first hammer I bought. I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a big rugged hunker. And through the years, I would, I would, I would go to a job site and discover I didn't, I, I don't have a chisel. Well, I, next time I got paid, I went and bought a chisel. I didn't have a good tape measure. Next time I got paid, I bought a good tape measure. I didn't have a, a good square to, to, to make right angles. And so each time, I would find myself on the job site and the boss would tell me to do something and I, did, I didn't have a nail set. The, the, the hard steel with a point on it so you can drive the nail a little bit deeper. So I, I bought three nail sets. In our Christian walk as disciples, we should go to the job site where God leads us and, and, and we should always find ourselves assigned to a job that we don't have a tool for. And, and when I was a carpenter, I would run to Pleasant's Hardware. Well, as a disciple, we run to God. And we say, God, I want to do this, but I don't have the tool. And guess what? God, because he took us to the job site, we offered to go to the job site. We offered ourselves to God to do the job, whatever that is. God, God is not stingy. He's not going to sit there going, no, no, you haven't discovered your gift yet. No. Discover your job. Discover where God wants you to be and do. And then in that process, without anxiety, let God use you. Show up to the job site and then admit, I don't have what it takes, God. And God looks at you and says, wow, boy, that sounds just like blessed are the poor in spirit. Beatitude number one. Blessed is the person who acknowledges their need. And then God says, let me take care of that for you. And time and again, God does the same works 
of all of them in all people. Verse 7, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And I, I love the word here, sumferon. Sumferon is for the advantage or usefulness or to bring together or for the common wealth. Best for all concerned. Sumferon. It's the pharon is, is the, the concerning best. And the sum means for all of you. So it's sumferon. The best for all of you. To each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good what is best from God's perspective for everybody. Not just, not just the person up front that everybody adores and celebrates because they have a spiritual gift. But for the common good. It, you can tell this is one of my soapboxes. I, I'm, I'm, I've, I've been so upset with people who had their pride first and they drew attention to themselves first instead of just showing up at the job site, opening their life up to the work of God and whatever God had for them, and God used them. And when, when all was said and done, God's grace was present, lives were changed, and the person that God used was able to walk away and say, glory to God, and celebrate with the people that experienced God's grace. Because it wasn't about the servant with the tool. It wasn't about the person who exercised the spiritual gift. It was about the person who received the grace of God and their life was changed forever. That's, that's what it's all about. Ephesians 4, it was he, talking about God, who gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and some to be shepherd teachers in order to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And now, it's house building. Uh, oiko domain, oikos is a house. Orca domain is to build a house. Uh, the old English word is edifice. Have you, have you heard people use the word edify? Oh, that worship service really edified me. Okay. Edify in the technical sense of oiko domain means to build on top and continue building the structure, to construct something. The Great Commission is to construct disciples, to build disciples. Making disciples is constructing people's lives so that they are more in the image of Christ. That's, that's, you know, they love, they love Jesus. They follow Jesus. They learn about Jesus. Whoa, they're a disciple. Okay. Orca domain is the verb of construction in order to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Body of Christ gets built up by individual lives being discipled, being built more into the character of Christ. It reflects God's grace. And got to say this, this is part of my part of my soapbox here. Some people read verse 11 and it's all about the fivefold ministry and and which one of these uh gifting, giftings do you have? You know, which one of the fivefold ministries is yours? And never get to verse 12 in order to prepare God's people for works of service. Okay, so God's people need some help, preparation, in order to do works of service themselves so that, okay, long-term plan, this is, this is the long game. The body of Christ may be built up. Yes! So, these are just five of at least 21, <laughs> but, but they're, they're, they've been elevated a lot because these five bring with it status in the church and in mission agencies. 
and egos. <laughs> okay. He's, he's an apostle. She's a prophet. He's an evangelist. Okay, okay. It can bring status with it. And then there are people that they ignore the status and they just keep doing what they know they're supposed to be doing because it produces fruit in people's lives and they're building up the body of Christ. To prepare God's devoted ones for works of service, serving like a deacon, so that the body of Christ may be built up, so that the house of Christ is constructed. First Peter puts it this way. Each one has received a charisma. Each one has received a charisma. Now, if you call it a gift or tool, I love the word tool, okay? My dad spent his career as an automobile mechanic. He, he grew up on a farm in North Carolina, and when his dad bought his first tractor, gas, diesel-powered tractor in like 1940, my dad was 11 years old. And he tinkered with, I think it was a 40 horsepower tractor, Ford tractor. And so he, when he went into the army during the Korean War, he went to mechanic school and he, he learned all kinds of engines. And through the years, he has bought tools. He's now retired, eyesight not very good. He can't breathe. He has COPD, so he doesn't do much anymore, but he has, he has, I know tens of thousands of dollars worth of tools that he bought one by one over a 60-year period. Tools. Tools. Each one has received a tool. Employ it for one another. And the word that gets translated for employ or serve is diakonuntes. Again, it's, it's, it's that... New Testament principle of serve. That's what deacons are supposed to do. And it's not about being a deacon. It's about serving. So guess what? Everybody who serves is in a way being diaconate. <laughs> okay. And that, that has nothing, nothing to do with being voted into that position in the local church. I know some churches, they have a board of deacons. It's if they're the only ones who are supposed to serve. Well, good grief. We're all supposed to be serving in a diaconate sort of way, as good stewards of God's manifold grace. And again, Peter uses the same word that Paul used, as good stewards. A steward, a household guardian, the oikonomoi, the guardian of the house. There's a builder of the house, there's a guardian of the house, a steward of the house. Romans says, I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, so that I may impart some charismata to strengthen you. That's the CSB. Uh, here's the, the Russell Joyner version. I desire to see you so that I may impart to you some charisma in order to make you all strong. I desire to see you so that I may impart to you some charisma, any charisma, and by charisma, I'm not talking about magnetism of personality. I'm talking about that thing from God that brings grace into other people's lives. And so Paul in Romans is saying, I, I want to see you so much 
so that I can come and impart to you some charisma in order to make you all strong, so that I can lead you into an attitude of serving, and you go to the job site of God, and lo and behold, a tool comes. Romans 12, 6, we have different charismata according to the charis given us. If it is by prophecy, let it be in proportion to faith. Now, the English translations lose something in the translation. We have different charismata, tools of grace, according to the charis, according to the grace. The, Paul is clearly linking charismata with charis. The, the way he uses it, he clearly shows this right here is related to that. Don't separate the two. Don't separate charismata from charis. Don't separate the spiritual gifts or tools of grace from grace from Karis. Don't. That right there, that point, if you only remember one thing today, remember that point. Okay. The reason I've given you Greek is not to show off my language skills. Please, don't misunderstand. It's so that you can see how the, the New Testament writers, in, in today's case, Paul, linked terms together, linked concepts together, because in the Greek, they are. And in this case, they are. <laughs> to, to talk about spiritual gifts, you've got to talk about grace. To talk about charisma, one tool, or to talk about the charismata, many tools of grace, you've got to talk about grace. It's, they're, they're not separate. It's not about the people exercising the tool or the gift. It's about the people receiving God's grace because that tool is being used. The gift is present. That's the point. And please share this with other people. <laughs> okay, it's so important. YWAM is a mission ministry that has always been open and sometimes cautious. Open to the move and work of the Holy Spirit and the giftings, but willing to be cautious about excesses. And I'm glad for that because there are some groups out there, they're open and they, they show no discernment of caution at all. Then there are other groups, they're not open to the work of the Holy Spirit because they've seen the weird shenanigans and excesses. And they've got all the reasons lined up as to why they don't want that stuff in their church or their ministry. Um, years ago, Wycliffe Bible Translators, this was like 35 years ago, uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators had people on the field who, uh, some of them did pray by means of tongues and some of them did not pray by means of tongues. And the ones who didn't pray by tongues were upset at the ones who did, thinking they didn't deserve to be a missionary with Wycliffe. And so they had a big international meeting and decided it's okay, as long as you don't make that the point of your ministry. The point of their ministry is Bible translation. <laughs> Go and spend time with people in primitive cultures and learn their language and translate the Bible accurately into their language. That's the point. And you should pray about your work. And if you're praying about your work, go ahead and pray the way you're going to pray, but don't make that the point of your ministry. At the same time, New Tribes Mission, another mission agency, had a circumstance where one of their one of their missionaries was praying in tongues, and they had an international conference and said, no, we won't allow it, we don't believe it, we condemn it, and anybody who does it is demonic. So they ejected that missionary from the field. And they went over and they joined Wycliffe. <laughs> so... Um, um, okay, it's 
1.07, right? Okay. Would you like to stop now or, or wait a little bit longer? Whatever. Let's go to a little bit more. Um, Paul was aware of local customs. In chapter 11, he says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. So, in this passage, Paul continues to use the singular noun. The singular noun when he speaks of woman and man. And in English, that might not make much sense. But in Greek, it's very clear. If he was talking about people, generally, he would have used plural nouns, men and women. In Paul's writing, when he uses a singular and he, and he is doing an, a, a, a description about man and woman, he's not using it the way we do by meaning uh, humanity. He's talking about a specific person. Remember, these are occasional letters. And Corinth was a city of multiple temples. And many of those temples had styles. They had fashion police. And people associated with that particular temple would wear clothes, head covering, and haircuts that would easily identify which temple they went to. For example, uh, one of the... the um, Actually, a couple, there were, at least two of the temples were um, predominantly lesbian, led and run by women, for women, and the two temples would distinguish themselves from each other and all the, all the other dozen religions by their hairstyle, by having it totally shaved or in, in their relationships within the temple, um, the, the, the dominant woman would have it totally shaved and the passive woman in the relationship would have it partially shaved, but the other temple did their hair differently. This is historically part of, part of the record of the different temples of both Corinth and Athens because they shared some of the same religions. Uh, now, most of the temples in Corinth were turn, torn down. Most of the temples in Athens are still there or, or the, the, the basic foundations are there. So if you go to Athens, you can see the representation of at least a dozen different ancient temples. And even though they don't still stand in Corinth, the same case was there. So that the way Paul writes it, he may be talking about a specific woman married to a specific man, or he, or he may be generalizing one particular couple generally for others who used to go to that, that, that temple and had her hair cut in a particular way, and until her hair grows out, she should cover her head. And, and I, this is not a, a perfect analogy, but there are people who, before coming to Christ, uh, belong to a gang or a cartel or a particular group that, that wears uh, their hair or their clothes or they have body tattoos or leather jackets with, with their name on it or something. 
and they come to Christ and, and they have to deal with, do I still wear my gang colors or do I still wear the, the outward sign? Um, in Mexico, there's, there's different groups that, and, I didn't know it, but walking down the street through Tijuana, uh, one of the Mexican guys was explaining to me, you, you see that hat the guy's wearing? See the way he, way he has his haircut? It, it shows who he belongs to, what group, what gang, what cartel he's functioning with. And the guy was obvious. I mean, he was showing people who he belonged to. It's very possible. It, it can't be proven, but it's very possible that Paul might be referring to people who've come to Christ, but just before they came to Christ, they had, had recently had a haircut that showed which temple they belonged to, and their hair hasn't grown out yet, so cover your head. And this is not a permanent statement for every church in the world in every century under all circumstances. It seems to be an incident there, if that's the, what the background is. And so Paul was aware of those local customs and hairstyles, that were, that were prevalent in Corinth and Athens in places like that where there were at least a dozen temples. There typically would have been several of the temples that were run by the priestesses and they would have different hairstyles. And also, also men did that too. Uh, men would have body marks, tattoos, cuts, um, uh, sometimes permanent tattoos, sometimes long-term inking. Um, on, on their face or shoulders or the clothes they wore or how they wore their toga to indicate who they what temple they were they were associated with and uh, you can change your clothes but your hair it's it's going to take a while and so that might be the background to what he's talking about here um, it since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head let her cover her head the disgrace there is not so much about the hair, but the, the disgracefulness of the attachment she had to the prior religion, to the, and to the prior goddess that she used to worship, the goddess Asherah, the goddess Athena, uh, those different religions. Okay. So, um, I, I look at a passage like that and, and that does seem to be one of those local issues incidental to their circumstance in that town, in that church, at that time, not a universal statement for all women for all time. And I say that respectfully because I know that there are groups where the women wear the, the doilies on their head or, or some kind of cap or something uh, in an attempt to, to honor what Paul was writing. But I, I think it, miss, uh, it, it doesn't take into consideration that it's an incidental statement, probably, with a local issue, not a universal. And that's why I brought up uh, with progressive revelation also recognize systematic teaching where something is repeated over and over again. Um, that, that, is, that helps us interpret an incidental issue brought up once or maybe twice. Okay. Um, have any of you ever had communion in church? Okay. Most, most of you are nodding your head like, yeah, yeah okay, so yeah. normal customary. Okay. 
most Christian churches have some form of communion in, and, uh, and there are some events and circumstances within YWAM in which you wind up having communion together. You may have led it yourself. Paul, writing an epistle, winds up including information that was shared in the gospel, and he elaborates on it. He actually, he actually helps interpret uh, what uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do when they record the Last Supper events. Um, in 11.18, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Now, I, I, I would... I wish he'd said more, but what I would insert is you're, you're doing something else. It's not the Lord's Supper. You're, you're, you're doing something entirely different. I don't know what it is, but it's not the Lord's Supper. That's, that's what he's communicating. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, in Corinth, uh, not a large Jewish community. Okay, there was a Jewish community there, but but it wasn't predominant. Those who responded to the gospel apparently were primarily Gentile, with some Jews among them, and so their gathering would have had um, a little bit of influence from the synagogue, and then some influence from whatever the other people were accustomed to when it came to religious gatherings. Now, think about that. People hear the gospel in the marketplace and realize, oh, okay, it's a new way to approach religion. It's a new way to approach God. And they find it appealing to hear about Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. And they say, well, I'm impressed that God would send somebody to earth and would die as a substitute for me. And people would be drawn to that. And they begin moving away from their 12 gods, <laughs> their polytheism, uh, their, 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 their worldview. And it's a, it's a paradigm shift to stop being a polytheist and becoming a monotheist and believe that the one God created me and came to earth <laughs> in flesh and died for me. Okay. And so people begin embracing that. Okay. How long does it take for somebody to let go? of their their previous notions, all of them, and embrace an entire entirely new different perspective. One God coming in flesh, offering himself as a substitute for me, and dying, and then resurrecting. Okay. Wonderful things. But it's going to take time for people to let go of some old habits. Look at look at chapter eleven, and 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 look at it through the eyes of somebody who's who's embracing this new faith, and then trying to figure out how much of the old stuff still applies. Um, verse seventeen. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Your worship gatherings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Now, he received a letter from them. It's divisive and agitating. He's received reports from, from his companions. 
And no doubt there have to be differences among you to show you which of you of God's approval. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. Now, when you've been in a church gathering, worship, and somebody is preparing you for communion, typically that person, if they're quoting from Paul, will jump in right at verse 23 and not read the stuff before that. Okay, That would be weird to do communion, but it's important for us to study this. For what I received from the Lord, I also pass on to you. So Paul is saying, I've received this from the Lord, both through uh, the teaching he got from the apostles in Jerusalem when he studied with them, uh, in, including Barnabas and, and um, Peter. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And how many times have you heard somebody in communion say, this is my body broken for you? Have you heard anybody say that? Not in the Greek, <laughs> not from the Greek. The, the ancient manuscripts don't say that, okay? Um, Jesus broke the bread because it was a convenient way to pass it out. It's, it's that simple. It was just, they're sitting at a table or they're reclining at a table. He's got, there's 13 people at the table and hey, Jesus takes the loaf of bread and he, it makes sense, break it and pass it, okay? Well, People turn. People create a theology of the brokenness of Jesus. Well, look, no, it's a theology of the sacrifice of Jesus. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And remember, two weeks ago, I talked about the four cups on the table, third cup of, of redemption, and so he's identifying with the seder meal, the Passover seder, with this cup. It, 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 I'm connecting here is the redemption cup. Well, that's me. I'm the redeemer. And so he, he's making that symbolic attachment. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And remember to talk about the death includes the resurrection. To talk about the resurrection, you got to include the death. And so it's a package deal again. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Now, you may have heard somebody make the point of... of now, be, they, they'll distribute the, the cup and the bread to you you're sitting in the pew, and, and maybe you got the little plastic cup or, or whatever, and a little wafer, and whoever's leading communion tells you to examine yourself, okay? Is there sin in your life that you need to confess and get right with God? Because, you know, otherwise you're unworthy. And maybe you've actually heard somebody tell you, you're unworthy in your sin, and so make sure you're, you're clean in your confession of, of your sin, and, and talk about it that way. Have you heard that? Okay. Not what Paul's talking about. What Paul's talking about is people who are accustomed to the temple, the, the, the different religions of Corinth, 
which would involve uh, food being sacrificed to the deity, food offered to Athena, food offered to Jupiter and Zeus, uh, food offered to Diana. Uh, as a part of the part of the, the sacrificial system in the ancient temples, uh, you would bring money, uh, drop it in a bucket. You would bring food, and, and and very often they would bring a meal, like a like an eight course meal on a platter on a charger, and. Uh, you'd take it to the priest or to the priestess, and the priestess would scoop off some of the food into the, the fire on the coals and would speak a, a blessing over the rest of it that the goddess or the god, the deity, would inhabit the food. And uh, then you would pray with her or with the priest, and then you would take the food and your drink, because everybody would bring their own drink, wine or beer or mead or whatever, whatever and typically was distilled or, or liquor or, or fermented or whatever, and then eat and drink their own, like a fellowship hall, but it wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't potluck. It wasn't people sharing. Whatever group came, whatever family came, if it was one person, they brought their own little picnic lunch. If it was a family or, or, or an extended family, they would bring you know lots of plates, but it wasn't about sharing. It wasn't about, oh, here, here, let's trade stuff. It was about eating and drinking and, and consuming the deity because the deity inhabited the food and the drink. And when you eat your food and eat your drink, you're now eating the God. And so the deity comes into you and inhabits you. And that's part of the mentality within the temples of Corinth and Athens and, and cities like that. And so it was normal that some people in the temples would get drunk, would eat too much, would it, it would turn into a party and sometimes turn into an orgy in some of the temples. That was encouraged in some context. Now, some of these people have heard the gospel, have responded to the gospel, and have said, I want to learn more about that. And then they hear that we're getting together next weekend, uh, bring some food, <laughs> bring some drink, and they haven't learned the protocols of this new experience. Okay, they, they are really saved. They've given their life to Jesus, but they haven't learned what it all means. So these people, some of them show up and um, they're eating ahead of other people. They're not sharing what they have. Uh, and, and Paul says, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. So you, you see what he's describing. You, you developed habits in the old religious system, and you've come into a new, a new situation. And you have to unlearn some of those habits. You have to drop some of the baggage. And you haven't learned that yet. And so when he says um, a person ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup, for anybody who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And, and the way Paul uses the body of the Lord, some think he's only talking about the, 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 the mystical presence of Jesus. That may be part of it, but I think he's actually talking about the literal people in the room with you. Because what is it that makes us the body of Christ? The Holy Spirit initiating us. Remember, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body and we become the church. And Paul 
is indicating you, you've come together and you got your food, you got your drink, but you're not recognizing the people around you are also members of the body. He, he's, he'll get into more of that in chapter 12. Recognizing I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm in church. I, I am church. I, I'm surrounded by church and recognize that. And, and in their context, recognize that, uh, when they do their communion, they would do it in the context of the larger meal of the food that everybody brought. And that's weird for us because we show up and all we do is have a little wafer or if we actually have a loaf of bread, we just break off a little piece. Okay. We have, we have minimized the whole experience. It's no longer an eight course meal. It's now just two elements and that's all we have. For them, they still have all the elements. And so, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and it actually does mean manners. It's not talking about you're, you're unworthy in your sin. That's not the point. It's, a, it's an adverb, and adverbs modify verbs, right? Unworthy manner modifies eat. You're going ahead and eating and getting drunk because you're ignoring that you're sitting in the middle of the body of Christ, and you're not sharing your food with them. Manners. Just... A willingness to be generous with the people around you in the context of food and drink and avoiding excess. And, and he's not condemning wine. That's not the point here. It's about sharing your wine and then drinking in a moderation. Okay. But, but the, the unworthy part is they're, they're treating it like a pagan ritual feast. They're not, they're not treating it like remembering what the Lord has done for us. That's that's what the issue is here. Okay, any questions on that? I think that's an important one for for us to know because it 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 helps us recognize the body of Christ. Okay, yes, body of Christ is that mystical presence of Jesus, but body of Christ is also when we are together, we are members and parts of the of the earthly representation of the church of Jesus, which is living and breathing human beings. And sometimes it's not pretty. <laughs> and sometimes it is, okay?